pay attention to the lawyer. The lawyer is the one who started this whole thing. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not some piece of wisdom from on high that Jesus drops out of nowhere. It comes in response to a question from a lawyer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus asked the lawyer, well, what do you think the answer is? The lawyer knows the answer cold. Many self-respecting first century Jew would. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't even have to think about it. That's because lawyers know the rules. They know the system. That's good. If you ask your lawyer what a statute means and they get out their phone to Google it, you'd be understandably nervous. But lawyers have another skill, too. They're good at seeing problems with language. We might just say they're good at finding loopholes. If language isn't clear or if it isn't precise, then they'll point it out to you. And that's exactly what the lawyer does to Jesus. He asks Jesus, so who exactly is my neighbor? It's not a bad question for us to think about. At the most basic level, neighbors are just the people who live near us. It's geographic. Our church has neighbors. We have neighbors who live on Wyckoff Avenue and Patton Place. Loving your neighbor means loving this group of people who live around you. We're kind of used to talking this way. We don't use the word neighbor a lot, but we use words like community that mean basically the same thing. We serve the needs of our community. We want to be involved in our community. That basically just means we want to love and be involved with our neighbors, the people we happen to live near. But you can already see a kind of problem with thinking that way. Because when we define our neighbors in terms of geography, the people who live near us, we take it for granted that these are the kind of people who should be our neighbors. We don't question why some people live by us and some don't. We don't raise any questions about the rules, values, and norms of life in our community. We just accept them as normal. The system that we've inherited, the way the world works. And if that's the way you read the story of the Good Samaritan, it's going to be a story about charity. Someone came across someone else in a ditch, and they helped them out. And when you come across someone else who's in a metaphorical ditch, then you should help them out too. But if that's the point of the story, be nice to people, then why introduce this whole dynamic between Jews and Samaritans? If you read through the Gospels, you'll realize that Jews and Samaritans don't like each other at all. The fact that we know this parable as the good Samaritan should tell you something about how most Jews viewed Samaritans. Not good. And so you would imagine that if these two groups of people really hate each other so much, they'd have some list of grievances, some list of reasons why they really don't get along. But they don't. If you go back a few centuries, you can find some disagreements. But for Jesus' contemporaries, they basically just hate Samaritans because they just do. This is what they've always done. They really don't know why they don't like them, and honestly, they probably don't really care. This is the system that we've inherited. This is the way the world works. We play by the rules that we've been given. That's often how we think, too. That's the way that most churches, most Christians are comfortable thinking. We're great at working within the system that we've inherited. Someone has a problem, fix the problem. 
Someone's in the ditch. Get them out of the ditch. But what the Samaritan man does by helping this Jewish man out of the ditch, what Jesus does by telling the parable in the first place, is subvert the whole system. We take it for granted that there are people who end up in ditches. We take it for granted that Samaritans are not good. We take it for granted that the people who happen to live next door have been divinely put there by God. So when the Samaritan man helps this Jewish man out of the ditch, he doesn't just act in a way that's generous. He actually calls the very rules of the system that everyone else considers normal into question. He sees the way the world works. He sees the status quo he's supposed to abide by. And he says, well, no. And that no cracks open the whole story. It pulls back the curtain on the whole operation. The things that used to look inevitable turn out to be the result of choices that people have made. And suddenly we're asking questions about the things we used to just think were normal. Why is this man in the ditch in the first place? Why isn't the road to Jericho safe to travel on? If this man was beaten up by a band of robbers, why does it make sense for people to make a living by theft? And most important, why exactly are we supposed to hate Samaritans in the first place? When we echo the Samaritan man's no to the injustices of the world, we start to see that oftentimes the things that we take for granted as normal are actually because of our own choices. Let me give you an example of this. For about the past 20 years, Advent has been a participant in the Wyckoff Love Fund, which provides emergency assistance to families with children who live or work in Wyckoff. And because it's all confidential, I can show you the spreadsheet sometime, it's a list of codes that are people, and it's a list of dollar amounts from how much money they've received. And when you look at the spreadsheet, you would think, well, these people all must have generally similar experiences. But in my experience, they really don't at all. In general, there are two different types of families, and those two different types of families have very different experiences. The first type of family lives in Wyckoff. They're doing well financially, and then two or three major emergencies happen at the same time. A parent dies at the same time the other parent gets laid off, at the same time one of the kids gets sick. The stories have an almost Job-like quality to them, and they're heartbreaking to listen to. Because you see a family that could absorb one of these emergencies, but they can't handle two or three at the same time, and their whole lives get upended because of what is basically bad timing. The second type of family has a family member who works in Wyckoff. Chances are they're a health aide, mostly women, probably black or Latinx. They were financially stable, and then one small thing happens in their lives. They come up short on rent one month, a family member can't watch a kid during the workday, a car needs to be repaired, and this one small thing creates an existential crisis for them. A couple of hundred dollars in expenses creates thousands of dollars in debt. And their stories break your heart, but they also make you furious. Because their emergencies are almost always symptoms of a bad system that is working exactly the way it is supposed to. Their problems are the result of choices that other people have made, and the outcomes they face are entirely predictable. 
One especially pernicious example of this kind of thing is cash bail. If you build a justice system that relies on cash bail, you will have people who have not been convicted of a crime who can't afford bail and get stuck in jail. That's about 450,000 people every night. And because they're stuck in jail, they can't work, which means many of them will lose their jobs, which means their kids will not be able to eat, which means that they will end up calling the Wyckoff Love Fund. The Presbyterians have been doing some interesting work on cash bail recently. One of the groups they've been working with is called the Bail Project. And this group started about 10 years ago working in the South Bronx. And what they realized was that the ways they were doing charity, providing food, helping people pay their rent, wasn't actually getting at the heart of the problem for people. It was good for people who got a tax write-off. It was good for the kids who could use it for a college essay. But it wasn't actually doing enough for the people it was supposed to help. So this group of people saw the way we normally think of helping others and said, well, no. Instead, instead of giving money or food to people who'd lost their jobs, they said, we're actually just going to start paying people's bail straight up. And the Bail Project, which has now taken that model nationwide, has paid bail for about 5,000 people. So instead of just helping people out of the ditch, they've kept people from going into the ditch in the first place. They've recognized that an outcome that seems inevitable, that seems like it's just the way the world works, is actually the product of our choices. And if we built the systems that force people off the road, then surely we can take them apart too. All of that brings us back to the lawyer's question in today's story. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Well, it turns out eternal life isn't something you inherit. Most of the things we inherit are not life-giving. Eternal life is something we create, or it's something that God creates in and through us. We create eternal life when we say no to the ways things have always been done and say yes to God's future. We create eternal life when we inhabit God's imagination for a new kind of world. And we create eternal life when the walls that make for good neighbors become the tables where we gather around God's mercy. There goes the neighborhood, but here comes the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.